Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Uh, today we are here with Professor Manuela Ciotti, uh, and we are here to discuss her very famous work, Retro Modern India Forging the Low Caste Self. Uh, so, let me briefly introduce Professor Manuela to you all. Uh, professor Manuela is a professor of the social and cultural anthropology of the Global South. She is a social anthropologist by training. She has worked on the areas of inequality, identity politics, and modernity in the struggle of social justice among suburban communities in India. She has extensively engaged with ethnographic fieldwork and archival research. Some of her major work includes Retro Modern India that was published in 2010-10 by Rutledge Publication. Her other major works include Unsettling the Archetypes, Feminities and Masculinities in Indian Politics that came out in 2017 by Women Unlimited. There are other works as well. Uh, Some of her forthcoming works include Unmooring the Nation, the global spread of modern and contemporary art form, art from India. It is upcoming from Indiana University Press. And, Root, uh, and from Rutledge, her work on uh, political agency and gender in India is also upcoming. So uh, welcome, Manuela, to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for your generous introduction, Kalyani. Yeah. So uh, before we begin uh, the conversation around your book, let me introduce your book to the audience. The book is an interesting engagement with Chamar identity and understanding it through the lens of modernity. Through a rich ethnographic engagement and field-based data, the book has looked into what modernity has meant for Chamar community and also the dialectical relationship such identity formation had with the discourse of modernity itself. So uh, let me begin the discussion around this book. So Manuela, your work is an important intervention to understand the paradigm of modernity per se and how Chamar identity can be located within this paradigm. What made you think to work on Chamar community from Manipur village at first place? Also, if you can reflect on how uniquely you position your research to understand Chamar community within the existing modernity discourse. That's great, Kalyani. These are um, incredible, um, uh, you know, incredibly important questions. Uh, thank you so much. Um, maybe I would like to start um, <clears throat> with the sort of <clears throat> the, the the question about. Um, selecting, you know, this community um, uh, to then, you know, uh, uh, sort of going on and making these interventions on modernity and, and I mean, primarily. Um, and for our non-Indian audience, uh, 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 Chamar, uh, Chamar community is um, basically part of the larger um um, a Dalit population in, in India, um, and so that's very important to 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 locate uh, this community first and the community in in, in question um, uh, uh, that belongs to this caste and with whom I worked. You know, is situated in the very large state of Uttar Pradesh uh, in the north of India, um, and uh, this basically. Um, um, 
my, my field work actually started in the late 1990s and it precisely in 98. And when I was thinking about this postcast, I, I realized that, you know, next year is going to be 25 years since the, I, I basically um, began this field work, which then uh, the book is based on field work, which was conducted in between 98 and 2005, uh, of course, with large breaks in between. And then I've actually visited, I've been visiting this, you know, this village um, over the years, and um, and I'm very much in touch with with the community, of course, with social media, and um, which is actually uh, fantastic. Um, so it's important to uh, to think also the of the you know uh, of the specific um, time. Uh, an era during which, well, era, you know, the period of, you know, within Indian political history to then really understand, you know, the, the intervention that I, that I've, um, you know, that I've tried to make. Um, what uh, uh, became very prominent uh, after, you know, years of, uh, you know, engagement with this community was uh, sort of a process that had, uh, featured two main trends um, within within it. The first one was <clears throat> this community's um, social transformation that really uh, followed the trends of uh, you know the Indian middle class and upper middle class upper classes uh, in in the nineteenth century in India's nineteenth century, um, which focused on you know the production of class distinctions such as for example you know an accent on women's resp- uh, respectability, on education and uh, and this civilizing uh, uh, you know quote unquote uh, dimension of um, you know formal education. And um, and at the same time, uh, you know, this Dalit Chamar community has, um, of course, been politically mobilized uh, uh, with, uh, you know, within Dalit parties such as the Bahujan Samaj Party that we probably return, you know, later on during our discussion. A party that was founded in the mid '80s, um, and then, of course, in the, at the time I was doing my research, it was really it had already ascended to um, great popularity. Um, had been really um, quite successful um, at elections, and so I uh, realized that there, there was a um, you know that I was basically photographing a process. Which featured these two um, uh, seemingly, uh, uh, anyway, I mean, seemingly um, or just apparently conflicting trends, but they are actually coming together in very interesting ways uh, within, you know, um, this community. So I was, I've been looking at this, at these trends, entanglements, at their tension, but also at the outcome somehow. And of course, the outcome is always in progress, right? Because we are talking about uh, socio-economic, political, and cultural um, processes, and. On the basis of this, um, uh, came my basically my challenge to uh, the very important paradigm um, of alternative modernities. For example, in the works by uh, Dilip Gaonkar, um, this very important paradigm um, basically um, uh, 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 tried to uh, account for um, you know differences within national templates of modernity. And so it was very important uh, to state, you know, the difference, you know, uh, uh, vis-a-vis Western models uh, of modernity. Uh, and I think this, this uh, you know, uh, this intervention was extremely uh, powerful and successful. With my book, I basically pushed this um, uh, paradigm a little further uh, because um, I really, I was really interested in thinking about um, these national templates of modernity uh, vis-a-vis societies that are deeply divided. And of course, with the caste system uh, in India, you know, we, we have a, a par, you know, a model par excellence of this, you know, of these uh, kinds of divisions. And so I was 
basically pushing forward the, uh, the um, pushing further the analysis of these templates of modernity to really understand what was happening within the nation and especially in societies as I said that are deeply divided and you know the caste system is of course a main engine you know that has historically uh, created and reinforced this um, uh, divisions and so more than looking at the differences between Western and Western worlds, I was really looking into the nation state. And from the standpoint of uh, Dalit Chamar identity and, and, uh, and agency, and so uh, this would be, uh, you know, to, to start our conversation, you know, this would be, um, you know, the book's main um, in- intervention. And uh, I think it's important to state that uh, the more we, for- the, the moment we foreground uh, Dalit Chamar, um, uh, 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 you know, identity and, and agency, is the, that's the moment where we understand that we need to change some things. Okay, so we not we no longer can talk about only national templates or you know the West you know against or vis-a-vis the non-West, but we really really need to go deeper. Um, and so ex- and this is exactly what the book ended up doing, <laughs> in, you know, in a way. Um, yes, yeah, so I would think that this is uh, you know this could. Uh, you know, frame, uh, you know, sort of the rest of our, um, you know, uh, our conversation. And, um, and, and I think that the, the, the outcome um, of this intervention um, or, or the driving principle, I would say, is, was really to build a more intimate connections between, you know, debates and concepts of modernity that were, uh, that been emerging from post-colonial worlds and the actors but my book shows that actors are not all the same, right? <laughs> uh, and so the very fact of uh, foregrounding, you know, a Dalit community, I think is really crucial um, in terms of understanding what we can do, you know, how we can build also on that and, and, and take it further. And, you know, we, we, we can discuss this in, uh, uh, you know, uh, in the course of this conversation. I hope that this is uh, a good introduction, you know, to, to our uh, debate, mm-hmm. Kalyani. Yeah. Oh, that's really reflective, uh, Manura. Thank you for uh, that wonderful introduction. And uh, it's really interesting to... Uh, thank you, uh, Ma- I'm audible? Yes, yes, you yeah. are. So uh, it's really interesting to... Uh, to uh, understand the ways in which you have understood the very paradigm of modernity, not going with the very national template of modernity, but actually looking into an alternative modernity paradigm through the lens of caste. And uh, it's also interesting the time when you were writing this book, uh, such kind of imagination of caste was barely done. So a very pioneering work in that way. So let me begin with my second question, uh, Manuela. Uh, In your study, you have indicated the difference between Ahir and Yadav kinship organization with that of Chamar community. Can you elaborate on this more? A follow-up question from this is, how do you investigate Bahujan identity, which discusses about coming together of caste marginal identities? Yes, thank you. Um, so these two questions are actually, um, you know, uh, um, are very much connected. And I would like to start with the second one. Again, also for our uh, non-Indian uh, audience, I just wanted to, uh, you know, um, uh, explain what Bahujan, you know, sort of means. And Bahujan uh, means the majority of the people. And um, and the main Dalit party that I've mentioned earlier, the Bahujan Samaj Party, you know, would be translated as, you know, uh, uh, the majority of the society, you know, uh, party. And, um, and in a way, this party wanted to really, um, you know, bring together all the oppressed, you know, lower caste um, uh, uh, people, not necessarily only Dalits, and in this kind of uh, uh, political organization, which I think to, to a certain extent, you know, uh, uh, and for a certain period of time, it did work. 
even in the face of, you know, caste oppression, which is uh, um, also, um, um, you know, uh, carried out by uh, lower caste, not necessarily only by upper caste. And this is something that we need to bear in mind. But, you know, Bahujan is also, um, in my view, is also an aspirational construct, a hope that people will come together whether in in a, a party a formation or a movement, uh, you know, and I, uh, you know, especially during my uh, second uh, long term uh, field work in the uh, Uttar Pradesh uh, national, you know, uh, capital, uh, like now, and this was, uh, you know, ethno- an ethnography of Bahujan Samaj Party women activists, um, especially Dalit activists. You know, I could really see this you know, Bahujan construct in a way, um, in action, right? Uh, so many people coming together from different caste communities, also different religious communities. And so this was, I think, a very special moment um, um, that, uh, you know, where something could have could have been built, uh, uh, which could have lasted a little longer, <laughs> you know, than uh, what it actually sort of, uh, you know, lasted. So uh, I think that we need to keep in mind, you know, the issue of uh, uh, caste discrimination and violence that is also, you know, obviously uh, concerning uh, the relations between the lower caste and, you know, Dalit uh, uh, class and, uh, you know, Bahujan as a, Again, a political aspiration, you know, a hope. Um, and now I want to go back to your um, other question, because um, so the, the, the first question uh, about, uh, um, you know, Ahir or Yadav kinship. Ahir and Yadav is, is a, um, you know, traditionally, um, you know, uh, cowherds uh, uh, communities, uh, again, also found in North India. And the specific um, argument that I made in my book about uh, these communities and that uh, basically built on the very important work by Lucia Micheluti on these communities, same in the same state uh, of Uttar Pradesh, is that basically um, she's found that the, the, the Yadus had really, um, um, you know, um, capitalized on the idiom of descent and kinship to actually trace um, their genealogies going back to, uh, uh, you know, Lord Krishna, right? And this was a way to create, uh, you know, um, uh, a, a political community, um, you know, uh, through this very strong uh, uh, idiom of, of descent. And so caste substance is very much, uh, you know, built through this idiom of descent. On the other hand, you know, uh, to mobilize, you know, uh, for political mobilization, this is, was something that was absolutely not present, you know, within Shamar community, but also at large, you know, within Dali communities. Um, because basically, um, they would not really mobilize on an idiom of descent or, you know, they would not really mobilize kinship, but um, they strongly believed in the ways in which education could change, could transform a very derogatory caste substance that obviously comes from, you know, the idiom of untouchability or purity and pollution that is, you know, the driving principle of the caste system, right? And, um, and in terms of... Uh, you know, in lieu of genealogies, you know, within Dalit communities, you have, I mean, you know these things, you know, like a Dalit pantheon where all the most important figures, like, you know, the famous Dalit leader, Dr. Medkar, and others, you know, uh, basically uh, feature in that. And so it's a very different ways of uh, understanding caste, understanding caste substance, and also to embrace political organizations and then to uh, basically uh, mobilize accordingly. So that's what that was the uh, main uh, argument there. And you see, it's also very important to make these arguments because we are talking about communities that are you know, living in the same regions, right? But you have very different ways to understand, you know, um, um, of the community to understand themselves, of mobilizing and, um, you know, and constructing those imagined communities upon which, you know, these political formations actually uh, uh, rest. So that was my, um, you know, that was my point. And, and of course, I've been, you know, 
some successful, I think, um, uh, examples of uh, uh, the ways in which this Bahujan identity uh, worked or could work, and some other less successful uh, examples, I would say. And um, yes, and then we also have to consider, as I said earlier, uh, you know, the uh, difficult relations, you know, uh, often between, you know, uh, uh, Dalit uh, communities and other uh, lower caste communities, I mean, non-Dalit lower caste communities. So, um, it's a way to basically braid, uh, you know, caste identities and practices with ways of, you know, uh, uh, envisioning themselves in the past, in the present, in the future, and thinking of how all of this informs political agency. Um, yeah. Thanks, Marlon. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It, it's an interesting reflection on the uh, both uh, Ahir Yadav kinship and Chamar kinship patterns, as well as their uh, political and social engagement. So let me move on to the third question. Your work has also brought interesting reflection on BSP politics and its genesis. Can you discuss more about interaction of Chamar caste with other caste groups within party politics? Yes, thank you. Um, I think I've already started, you know, uh, uh, doing this uh, when I mentioned my, uh, you know, the example of, uh, well, my ethnography field work in, in Lucknow. Um, but of course, I can I, I can uh, uh, dwell on this further. I think it's, it's uh, good to go back to, um, you know, the specific times and the specific periods of my field work, as I said, you know, the, the, this, you know, the Bowdoin Samaj Party as, you know, was already uh, quite popular and quite, um, um, you know, uh, successful. Um, and um, at the time, uh, um, during my field war, I could trace the ways in which, um, especially the, the uh, young, educated, um, uh, you know, educated young men uh, within Chamar community, had basically um, um, ensured that, uh, you know, a community that was voting for the Congress party, which had been historically, you know, uh, 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 at least in North India, you know, being the the main uh, uh, political formation that would, you know, bring together different kinds of communities, especially, you know, upper caste and the lower caste. But these uh, educated young men had managed to basically um, convince the community to shift, you know, from the Congress party to, uh, uh, you know, the Bahujan Samaj party. So, it was a very, I think it was a very historical time, uh, you know, a very important uh, um, uh, moment. Um, and that transition had already happened by the time I, you know, I started my fieldwork. But what was very important was, uh, you know, tracing, you know, all the reason as to why, you know, a party which was led by upper caste was not really longer you know, uh, the fav- you know the the best option. You know, for the very large, you know, Dalit uh, uh, vote banks, uh, especially in North India, and so um, it was important to. Uh, uh, think about the ways in which Dalits would reflect upon this shift and the reasons as to why, you know, this shift was actually uh, uh, possible. And, uh, and of course, you know, it, the BSP at that time was not just relying, though it was called, you know, it was, was known as to be, to be like a, a Chamar party, and also the Chamar community is very large, you know, uh, in Uttar Pradesh. Um, it was not obviously just that, and over time it managed, uh, you know, to, to successfully bring in more communities, including, um, obviously, um, uh, upper caste communities, and we'll talk more, you know, about that um, during our uh, conversation. Um, but I think that it was it was a it was a foundational moment. It was the time when, uh, you know, Dalit castes realized that they wanted to have, uh, you know, a, a political formation that was led, created, and led by Dalits, and so it was an autonomous form of, you know, of of representation. Um, and again, we always have to think that, you know, uh, uh, relations between, um, you know, uh, Dalit castes and other caste groups is never really, you know, uh, all 
always uh, um, ideal and always uh, benign, but within, you know, the uh, uh, I think the. Um, you know, this idea of, you know, Bahujan Samaj, you know, the majority of the People's Party, I think at least, you know, as I said earlier, there was an hope and aspiration that those relations would be actually, um, you know, uh, would be, uh, you know, peaceful and, you know, these political ideologies would bring together uh, more people to find the hegemony of, you know, the 1%, right, of the, the, the you know, the upper castes, you know, within, uh, you know, within the state and, and, and beyond. And so it was kind of that moment of understanding that you could have your own political formation, you could elect um, your... Um, you know, representatives um, in the parliament, not just from, you know, the reserve constituencies uh, that um, that are, uh, you know, uh, in place in India, where only, you know, uh, 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 scheduled caste members can be elected by any party, scheduled caste meaning, um, uh, you know, Dalit, um, that's the legal denomination, but, you know, um, uh, 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 Dalit uh, representatives of other lower caste representatives could be elected from, uh, you know, from any, from any seat. And so, um, as I think, you know, we will discuss later on, you know, this moment somehow has, you know, it seems to have uh, passed. And that's probably the, the, the kind of things that is important to, to reflect upon and to think about of how those very um, amazing energies that were released by these political formations basically, um, you know, could not really have um, a life, you know, uh, more than just maybe a couple of decades, uh, you know, long. So that that would be my reflection. But really, at the time that I was doing my field work, I was really photographing the ascendance, the you know, widening popularity of this party, and the kind of, you know, hope. You know, the things would change also in terms, of course, of caste relations, not just in terms of development, because if you have caste violence, you know, it's very difficult for, you know, uh, to improve your, you know, the development index, um, you know, human development index, for example, because, of course, you have always have to face with marginalization, with, um, uh, you know, with violence, uh, etc. So it was a moment of hope which unfortunately did not, uh, you know, last till today, um, if you ask me. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Manuela. In fact, uh, my next question is a follow-up to uh, where you ended this question. And it's interesting that it has been almost 25 years of the work, uh, like since the work began. And so uh, it's also interesting to locate your research in contemporary context. So in contemporary context, how do you see Chamar identity being ruled out in political sphere? Many of the criticism of BSP politics have discussed that BSP has turned into a Chamar Brahmin party rather than a Bahujan party as was proposed by Kanshiram. What is your critical reflection on this when you look back into your own work that you wrote almost a decade back and researched almost 25 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it's definitely um, following up on on, uh, what uh, we just discussed. And um, yes, there were very strong critiques about, you know, this party, you know, born as a Dalit party, you know, created by Dalits, led by Dalits. But then, you know, for reasons of, uh, you know, electoral calculus, basically, you know, uh, um, the party had to, you know, strike alliances with upper caste parties and... um, um, and of course, you know, uh, uh, coalitions, uh, you know, caste coalitions are incredibly uh, uh, potent and, and, um, and nobody can actually, uh, you know, uh, ignore them, right? But then again, you know, this was uh, a short-lived 
somehow face, you know, uh, of the party. I mean, I'm talking about in historical terms, you know, uh, where <laughs> with reasons around, you know, uh, sort of longer, uh, uh, you know, periods of time. And right now, it seems that, you know, the Dalit vote is increasingly being um, uh, sort of absorbed by the the, the uh, Bhartiya Janta Party, right? Which is a party, in, uh, in, you know, in, in power. And so there are a lot of questions about, you know, why this is actually happening. And I'm not talking about the community with whom I, uh, you know, I conducted my fieldwork, uh, you know, uh, right now. Um, you know, what basically brings, um, you know, um, a Dalit uh, community or individuals, because, you know, it's also we have to differentiate, you know, uh, uh, because, of course, we, we are very um, um, attuned to the fact that very often communities vote, vote in bloc, uh, right, but we also have to think of individuals, right, and we also have to think of a very important role in an urban, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of divide. Um, so, you know, it's it's very uh, interesting to reflect on as to why you know uh, uh, Dalits are increasingly voting for the for the Hindu right, but this is not uh, also a new uh, phenomenon, right? So there's also there's you know the Dalit population, as you know, you know is a very diverse and heterogeneous um, um, you know uh, population, and it's uh, you know where there's many many castes, you know, with very different histories and very different relations, you know, also among themselves, and so I think that this is really the question of the contemporary era, you know, um, thinking that, you know, Dalit parties are no longer, in a way, able, capable of, of uh, you know, uh, uh, attracting, uh, you know, the Dalit uh, uh, votes, uh, we have, you know, Dalits voting, uh, you know, for uh, the Hindu right. What does that mean? You know, for you know, uh, thinking of Dalit movements in the past and in the present, there are basically um, pointing at Hinduism as the main sort of uh, cause of, you know, their discrimination. And of course, we know very well, you know, the conversion, Dr. Ambedkar's conversion to Buddhism, and many uh, Dalits did, do, did convert, of course, uh, you know, to Buddhism. Though, uh, for example, the community that I worked with, um, you know, the it was only like um, um, just few individuals who actually uh, done that. So we also have to say that there's also a diversity in terms of how <clears throat> Dalits, um, you know, relate, uh, you know, with different, vis-a-vis uh, -vis different, uh, you know, with different uh, religious traditions within India. But really the question of, you know, today's question is, you know, why uh, would you want to work for, uh, sorry, would you want to vote for, you know, a Hindu right, uh, uh, you know, political party? But this is the reality that we are basically uh, faced with, right? And so what does it mean, um, you know, for, for a Dalit basically to do that? It's about, uh, um, you know, being included in a wider political vision and what kind? Is it because the religious sort of component within this political formation is less relevant than other promises or other hopes? Um, so this, I think, is the kind of um, uh, question that is, you know, you know, I, I would say uh, very prominent uh, uh, you know, today, but again, you know, it's not that it's it's a phenomenon only of today that you know Dalits have voted for you know um, Hindu right uh, formations. But what we need to also confront with is, you know, why did this whole thing basically? Uh, why this you know Dalit um, uh, parties, or especially you know the, the Bhajan Samaj Party? has, you know, uh, basically almost faded from, uh, you know, uh, or, or lost a lot of, you know, uh, electoral uh, favor among, among Dalits. Um, why can't you promise, you know, uh, 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 things, you know, to them anymore? And what was the promise, you know? Was it only about sort of symbolic empowerment or was it also about material empowerment, you know? So there's plenty of questions, you know, um, here. But 
really we have, of course, you know, in front of us, uh, uh, you know, uh, we have a trend whereby, you know, we have, a, you know, uh, 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 the Hindu right party increasingly, you know, being increasingly, uh, getting increasingly powerful and, you know, a Dali party that basically has lost, you know, quite a, you know, a lot of power and a lot of, uh, you know, um, Yes, uh, votes basically. So that's that's the kind of maybe there's a lot of comparisons that we can make, you know, globally. But I think for the sake of of the book, we probably want to stay here, uh, in a sense. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Manuela. Uh, that was really a helpful recontextualization of your work with contemporary context, and hopefully, it will also help audiences to connect with uh, the debates they might uh, be witnessing uh, around the Bahujan politics and the Dalit politics. So, uh, let me get back to uh, some of the theoretical arguments that you have proposed in your book. So, my next question is on that. So can you explain how the discourse of modernity be revisited through your ethnographic account of Chamar caste that you have discussed in your research? Also, uh, if you can explain more about uh, the theoretical uh, reimagination of modernity that you have uh, done and brought in your book. So uh, can you reflect more on those lines? Yes. Um, so as we know, you know, modernity has been uh, often theorized as, as the coming of an, a set of new practices and also, um, you know, also the coming of different ways in which people place themselves, you know, in time and, and space, especially in time. OK, so that's what, uh, you know, um, mainly interests me. While I, you know, during my field, or especially after, you know, when I was looking at what, you know, my data, um, and so uh, really, I wanted to. Uh, well, I ended up basically uh, sort of breaking down this very unitary and very monolithic history of modernity in India through the tool of Chamar agency and, and identities. Okay, and so I was really thinking in terms of you know, what does an elite, non-elite community, you know, bring to the table uh, when we think of, of modernity? And that's what basically, um, you know, that's, you know, what my intervention is is, is really, um, you know, all about. Uh, what does caste emancip- emancipation from caste bring to the table when we think of these both national, uh, you know, uh, uh, templates of modernity, you know, around the world, but also the specific national um, um, uh, template, you know, within India. You know, what does it mean to foreground, you know, such communities and rethink modernity along these lines? Well, one of the main um, um, uh, sort of uh, argument in the book is this, um, you know, this dichotomy between uh, past and present. And again, you know, I said this is a ways, you know, modernity is often being terrorized as, uh, you know, as featuring a certain experience of temporality. And so I, this was something that it was really um, so pervasive, you know, during my fieldwork. Uh, what was pervasive? You know, um, how uh, uh, basically Chamas would um, value the present over the past, Okay, um, the past was always considered to be a very, um, you know, um, you know that, that a very derogatory notion of the past because the past represented untouchability, basically, but also a lack of refinement of their own community, um, and so uh, you know, I, I, you know, part of uh, in in the book there is um, a chapter. Uh, that was published as an article, um, uh, you know, uh, that was titled, you know, in the past we were a bit chamars. And, and so you see, because chamar can, in North India can also be, uh, as you probably know, like a term of abuse, right? It does not just uh, connote a, a, a caste name, but can also be a term of abuse. So it has to be used very carefully. And of course, I use it, you know, in the book um, as a caste name. And of course, I dwell also on the politics of naming for those who are interested, right? And so there is this very strong notion of the past as something that you really want to overcome, 
Okay, and so there's no such a thing as relying of you know this idea of relying or reviving these traditions because actually all it, all it matters is the present, yeah, within this community. So the present becomes the temporality par excellence, right, uh, where the community has become quote unquote civilized educated where people can, you know, um, um, no longer uh, perform uh, menial works, which is, of course, you know, some people, of course, uh, still uh, did, where, you know, the community mostly had emancipated from, uh, you know, uh, agricultural labor, uh, and also from, of course, upper caste landlords, which is very important. And so you see how this dichotomy between past and present um, um, as he emerged, you know, from an ethnography with a non-elite uh, community, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, poses a lot of questions about the sort of, uh, you know, uh, national templates of, of modernity within India and maybe even, uh, uh, you know, beyond. So this was um, really one of the main interventions, I think, that, um, uh, would reshape the discourse of modernity in India, um, but you can only do it if you choose a different standpoint, really, if you choose to foreground, you know, the identity and practices of uh, a non-elite community, and particularly, like, you know, a Dalit community, which has, and not only that community, but the whole population, which has, of course, a history of you know, violence, uh, uh, discrimination, marginalization. Again, as I said earlier, you know, the population, we are talking about over 200 million people. So we, we, we have a huge diversity, of course, within this population of histories, of, uh, you know, practices, and depending on, you know, where they are located within India, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I would really, um, uh, you know, foreground the ways in which, uh, thinking of um, emancipation from caste and the kind of uh, ideologies and techniques that each community, community has forged and has adopted over time is absolutely crucial to understand what modernity is, is all about. Okay? And there will be plur- plural accounts. You know? This is only you know, one of the many accounts, but I hope that um, the kind of effort... You know, this kind of effort is inspiring others to actually, you know, search, push for difference, okay, further and further and further. And not, you know, without uh, relying only on this national, uh, you know, templates um, of modernity. And... um, and see, obviously, what happens, you know, in other communities. I mean, we mentioned, you know, lower caste, um, you know, a community of uh, the Yado and the Ahirs, and we see difference there as well in the ways, you know, they imagine their community. And there you see, you know, they were very much, uh, um, uh, they very much crafted, you know, these genealogies and also sacred genealogies, you know, through the idiom of descent. So you see, you know, the past there is a very important resource, unlike for the Chamars. And we are really talking about communities that, you know, live in the same region. So I'm all in favor of pluralizing that discourse on modernity because we would have, you know, we would encounter so many different narratives. Yeah. So it's really about opening up the narratives. Okay, pluralizing the voices. Then if you ask me, um, you know, how this discourse, how these interventions, you know, can be maybe, uh, I wouldn't say retaught, you know, like 10 or 20 years on, um, especially after these political hopes are a little, you know, have vanished, you know, um, uh, to some extent. I was, you know, reminded of, uh, you know, James Ferguson's work uh, on uh, in Africa, where, you know, he uh, basically uh, was commenting on the development failure in the continent. And so something that had actually emptied modernity of that kind of theological element, i.e. progress will not come, will no longer materialize, okay? And so modernity changes from being sort of an aspiration towards the future, you know, and, you know, the hope that things will change, the hope that progress will come into a status, 
Okay, so you are modern today, right? <laughs> There's nothing that's gonna come in the future. So you look at the present. You know, you have, of course, very dystopic, um, you know, landscape. But you know, you can only rely on the present and claim, you know, a modern status for yourself because that horizon of hope and progress has probably, you know, it's probably it's probably vanished forever. I mean, let's hope not forever, but that's the kind of uh, thing we, we also have to think about in today's, um, you know, times. Who can give that hope? Who can give that promise? Yeah, and how that possible lack of, you know, horizon and and you know, hope in progress affects, you know. Uh, if we did, uh, you know, the same ethnograph, not the same, you cannot do the same ethnographic fieldwork, you know, but, you know, uh, ethnographic fieldwork um, with the same community, whether you would register that kind of, uh, you know, uh, loss of hope, uh, loss of, uh, you know, in progress and, and, and positive transformation, because what was, has been, was really crucial and what was really visible and important and pervasive, um, you know, during my field was this really this very strong dichotomy between, you know, past and present. But would that be the same dichotomy as strong, you know, if we, you know, interview them today, you know, in changing and, and change, you know, political circumstances and development circumstances. So that's another open question, of course. But again, we have to also think of, you know, these other theoretical, you know, um, interventions, for example, you know, the one that I mentioned uh, by Ferguson vis-a-vis uh, -vis the African continent. So I don't know whether this <laughs> answer your, uh, you know, your question. Yes, Manuel, thank you uh, for uh, reflecting on uh, what approach to modernity have you uh, taken and it's very interesting that you talk about a plural account of modernity uh, and in fact modernities uh, rather than working through a very national template of modernity and uh, in fact uh, this is very important to push uh, ahead the differences that we see in the discourse of modernity itself. So uh, moving on to a very similar question, uh, my next question is uh, that in your work, it is interesting to see how you have developed a dialectical relationship between Chamar community reflexive experience uh, with modern, Chamar community reflexive experience with modernity by analyzing their ethnos. How can we stretch this argument further to develop a knowledge paradigm? How can such a such form of knowledge further contribute to Dalit discourse? Yes, that's great that you're asking me this question after we all that we discussed so far. So um, I think that uh, it's very clear from what we said and from the book that it is it's about you know uh, the Dalit standpoint, okay, the Dalit Chamar standpoint, as vis-a-vis -vis, you know all kinds of other standpoints, and um, and especially vis-a-vis -vis the the sort of normative caste standpoints, i.e. you know upper caste, etc. Uh, you know, and this is a lens that has been often used to to make sort of theoretical arguments about you know um, Indian history. I mean, not necessarily not everything, but you know. <clears throat> Obviously, we always have to keep in mind that we want to challenge those, uh, you know, normative standpoints, especially upper caste standpoints. So, um, <clears throat> in addition to what I said, I mean, you're very right. I mean, I, I, I argue, you know, that actually this book was saturated with uh, with ethnos, but not only, of course, because we also talk about modernity. But the two things, you know, cannot really be, uh, you know, we cannot really choose one or the other. And so you can, you are still able to make a theoretical intervention and to think about, you know, these larger, um, you know, concepts uh, by mobilizing basically the particular feature features of, you know, um, uh, a community. And I think this is quite important. You know, we don't talk in abstract terms. Uh, we need to kind of, um, uh, you know, um, build on what if that is our interest of course you know at least it was it was mine for sure you know to to think about what our interlocutors say and do and practice to then you know think about these larger constructs such as uh, modernity now 
I think that all of my work, you know, really starting with the article that preceded, you know, this book that were then included in the book, and then my um, uh, subsequent work, and especially all the stuff that I published on, uh, you know, BSP um, uh, women activists, all this work basically has gone to um, um, uh, basically contribute, I think, to the formation of a new knowledge paradigm. All these works actually say in direct and more direct and indirect ways, please open up the subject. Please don't consider Dali communities, individuals, only as subjects of violence, discrimination, and marginalization, because only if you look at this book, right, there's so much more that comes into the picture, right? So, of course, we need to foreground, you know, Dalit experience, and I completely understand, um, you know, all of basically the very fierce and understandable desire to assert Dalit difference, especially, you know, in the younger generation of Dalit activists, because let's also... Think historically, you know, a Dalit activism is also profoundly changed, you know, with the new generation of, you know, um, uh, social media savvy, uh, you know, young Dalits, which is actually great, both in India and in the diaspora. Okay, but um, all I've been trying to say, or a very important point that uh, I've been trying to say with my work is, let's, um, you know, let's think of Dalit subjects as all-round subjects, right? There was one article, actually, that I that, um, um, it was published in the Routledge and Book of Gender in South Asia, and it's just been, uh, the book has just been, uh, uh, you know, a new edition of the book has just been published. So I had this, uh, this uh, essay, I have this essay called, um, titled Dalit Women Between Social and Analytical Alternity, Rethinking the Quintessentially Marginal. Well, I think that this is, where I, um, you know, I push in a more kind of direct way, you know, in towards this, you know, in this direction, like um, uh, in the face of uh, 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 very um, active, you know, uh, Dalit women in the in the uh, public sphere, on the grounds, in the gra- grassroots organizations, in political parties, can we think of them really only as, you know, quintessentially marginal subjects? And my answer is obviously no, right? Because we also want to know, um, you know, we also want to talk about, for example, Dalit women beyond, you know, exploitation, marginalization, and discrimination, because actually what we see in the public sphere and also in the private sphere, you know, is very different subjects, right? And this is not to depoliticize, of course, right? Uh, Dalit struggle for social equality and not for undermining an extremely long and rich history of, you know, anti-caste, um, you know, fights and struggles. But I think that, um, you know, uh, um, it's very important to think of non-elites in the post-colonial world that are both um, uh, very vocal and very active, you know, uh, fighting um, historical injustices, but but also they are active doing other things, right? <laughs> They're also active on everyday uh, 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 their everyday lives. They they are um, all. I'm trying to say that I think that what I would like to see and what I've been striving for in my work is um, you know it's it's a it's a knowledge paradigm where we consider you know uh, Dali communities Dalit individuals across genders across, across the gender spectrum as all-round subjects okay um, and so I think that the book is actually it's, it's a quite a, a good example and also the, the subsequent writings in trying you know for trying and think of um, you know, Dali communities placed in much larger uh, contexts and landscapes than just those of, um, you know, exploitation, marginalization, and discrimination. In my book, there's plenty of this, right? I mean, <laughs> of course, you, you know, the, you've read the book, you know, so I'm not um, arguing for marginalizing, of course, is in very uh, extremely important topic. And we, you know, unfortunately know more and more about, you know, what actually happens, you know, through social media, as opposed, for example, you know, uh, at the time of my first fieldwork, 
um, where surely, you know, uh, violence would occur, but we would not be, I think, as, you know, informed, you know, um, um, about it. Um, And that's the kind of big change the social media has brought about, as we all know, right? But really, I think that... um, um, you know, to 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 get back to your to your question, um, I I wish for this the Dalit discourse both in India and and globally to really open up the subject, open up the the agency, to open up identities, and you know pluralize uh, voices as much as possible, and also to think of the historicity of all of this, right? Because as I said earlier, there's a kind of a big difference between how political agency was you know, um, you know, unfolded in a way, you know, in the previous generation and in this generation. Yeah. And so that also needs to be taken into into account. Um, so th- that would be my my, um, you know, my contribution and my hope, you know, for um, for not only for Dalit discourse, but, you know, for any kind of, uh, you know, analysis and conversation, you know, um, on and with, you know, Dalit individuals and communities. So I hope <laughs> this reply answers your question. Thank you, Manva, so much for uh, talking about what Dalit knowledge means and how far uh, the Dalit discourse can be uh, discussed and in ways in which it can further unfold. So uh, towards the end, I would uh, like to ask, is there any concluding remarks that you would like to talk about your book? And also, how do you see to take your work, Retro Modern India, forward? Right. Well, I should say that thank you so much. And I should say that, um, uh, uh, you know, there is a, a hopefully I will manage a second edition of this book where all of these um, uh, thoughts, uh, reflections and um, additional, um, you know, work that has been accumulated over the years, you know, can uh, can find the space. Um, uh, and so, you know, that is my hope and aspiration uh, you know that I managed to uh, to actually do this, um, and uh, so there's there's uh, you know maybe uh, yeah uh, uh, what, what I'm hoping you know like uh, in a, in a new uh, publication um, they can bring all of these uh, um, together, but I think that. Um, See, one of the main things, as I said earlier, is, um, you know, one of the main changes to uh, ethnographic fieldwork in general, but also especially thinking of what the kind of ethnographic fieldwork that I've conducted, you know, in UP, um, in Uttar Pradesh, uh, you know, with this community is really how, you know, is social media, right? And so, um, you know, uh, one of my questions is always, okay, what if I was conducting, you know, field work with them, you know, at this time? And um, and I think what is actually amazing is the ways in which I can connect with this community. And I w- I've been in touch, you know, over the years with them, even with video calls, you know, when there is a celebration with, you know, photographs, etc., and uh, and of course, I did not take many um, you know photographs at that time. Of course, some um, you know I have, but it's the kind of um, uh, you know uh, uh, visual, textual uh, you know accounts you know that uh, you know might come together uh, today that probably we. You know, and the kind of you know different forms of communication, uh, you know, the social media allow. So I allows. So I think that that's the kind of curiosity that I have. You know, um, um, uh, it's a kind of uh, um, you know uh, my own aspiration. You know, to be able to to really uh, think again about you know these. Um, uh, you know this this fieldwork and these communities, thinking you know, of bringing in all that uh, you know the good and the bad. I would say you know that social media has uh, basically brought into the you know uh, you know brought into the picture, and and I'm actually um, going to write um, 
just a little uh, preview. I'm going to write, uh, you know, as part of a panel for uh, it's the the film festival the, the, uh, of the Royal Anthropological Institute uh, that is going to happen next spring. Uh, I'm actually going to write a piece on, um, you know, the Dalit image precisely basing myself on, you know, uh, basing this on, um, you know, my my strong interest in thinking um, of visuality, vision, and um, and image um, vis-a-vis, you know, Dalit communities um, in this era. So you see, um, I've been writing about, uh, you know, sort of many things, but this kind of question has remained with me. And and so let's see what uh, comes out, you know, in the future, you know, while pursuing this, uh, this question. Of course, a lot of this has been, a lot of this interest has been influenced by my research work on the politics of art and materiality in India, as you know, you know, uh, with the over 10 years I've been working on, on this. And so the two kind of major strands of my work are coming together and they're enriching, mutually enriching, they're mutually enriching and, um, uh, you know, one another. And so that's also, uh, you know, something that I, you know, some tools and, uh, and um, you know, conceptual frameworks that, of course, I didn't have and I wasn't aware at the time because, of course, this other newer work, let's call it this way, you know, hadn't taken place. And so, you know, right now I, I can build, uh, you know, I can mobilize and I can, can, I can capitalize um, on many more things than 25 years ago, of course. I mean, it goes without saying, but I'm very much uh, looking forward to developing basically this um, other strands of work. Oh, thank you. Thank so you, much. Manuela. Thank you, Manuela. That was indeed very uh, good reflection on your work, and I'm sure this uh, podcast will be helping a lot of people uh, who read your work ahead and engage with the Dalit discourse in the coming times. So, uh, thanks again, Manuela, for uh, talking to us uh, at the New Books Network, and uh, hope. Uh, to uh, have further discussions with you again over your new projects. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kalyani. Very kind and very nice um, of you of, you know, like thinking of my book. And I'm very much looking forward to talking more with you about the future projects and your own projects, of course. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.